an Egyptian sphinx-like artifact. So where do you see yourself in 5,000 years? Essentially, questioning history about its future. And the implied answer, uh, at least in this particular sketch, is that the future will be no different than the past. But today, let me tell you, for those who believe the story of Jesus Christ, the future shall be far different than the past. And it is in times of crisis and moments of grief that this becomes clear. The future must be different. Perhaps you are among the several million people who read the lament of Sheryl Sandberg, COO of Facebook, whose husband died tragically just a couple days over a month ago. She writes with such honesty, and I urge you to take a look at her Facebook post sometime when you have opportunity. A bit of it. A childhood friend of mine, she says, who is now a rabbi, recently told me that the most powerful one-line prayer he has ever read is, let me not die while I am still alive. I would have never understood that prayer before losing Dave. Now I do. I think when tragedy occurs, it presents choice. You can give in to the void, the emptiness that fills your heart, your lungs, constricts your ability to think or even breathe. Or you can try to find meaning. These past 30 days, I have spent many of my moments lost in that void, and I know that many future moments will be consumed by the vast emptiness as well. But when I can, I want to choose life and meaning. I have gained a more profound understanding of what it is to be a mother, both through the depth of agony I feel when my children scream and cry, and from the connection my mother has to my pain. She has tried to fill the empty space in my bed, holding me each night until I cry myself to sleep. She has fought to hold back her own tears to make room for mine. I have learned that I never really knew what to say to others in need. I think I got this all wrong before. I tried to assure people that it would be okay, thinking that hope was the most comforting thing I could offer. A friend of mine with late-stage cancer told me that the worst thing people could say to him was, it's going to be okay. That voice in his head would scream, how do you know it's going to be okay? Do you not understand that I might die? I learned this past month what he was trying to teach me. Real empathy is sometimes not insisting that it will be okay, but acknowledging that it is not. This world, as we know it, is not okay. But for those who embrace the story of Jesus, 
God poured himself fully into a human being. A God who came and died on the cross, the atoning sacrifice that provides salvation and resurrection. Resurrection, Jesus, the first fruits of a magnificent, glorious resurrection to come. In the Christian story, we have hope. The next 5,000 years cannot be like the previous 5,000. And the Christian story says it shall be different. After his resurrection, Jesus is with his disciples. Just prior to the ascension, and his disciples turn to him and ask Jesus, when will this happen? The restoration of Israel. When will you come back again? And Jesus turns to them and says, it is not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has appointed, but instead, instead you shall be my witnesses throughout the earth. And then we discover the appearance of two angels, two men dressed in white, who have a word for these Adventists, these ones who look into the sky hoping for a better future. And in a single verse, these messengers from heaven clear the brush for those of us who hope in Jesus and plant some trees. Here is the verse, Acts 1, verse 11. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. First, they clear some brush. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? One of our most important commentators, John R.W. Stott, makes the following observation about this verse. There was something fundamentally anomalous about their gazing up into the sky when they had been commissioned to go to the ends of the earth. It was the earth, not the sky, which was to be their preoccupation. Their calling was to be witnesses, not stargazers. The vision they were to cultivate was not upwards in nostalgia to the heaven which received Jesus, but outwards in compassion to a lost world which needed him. It is the same for us. Curiosity about heaven and its occupants, speculation about prophecy and its fulfillment, an obsession with times and seasons, these are aberrations which distract us from our God-given mission. Jesus Christ will come personally, visibly, gloriously. Of that we have been assured. But other details can wait. Meanwhile, we have work to do in the power of the Spirit. Stott helps us understand that these two witnesses wish to clear some brush. 
Don't become distracted being a stargazer wondering about when this will happen. I hold in my hand a book by William Blackstone. The title, Jesus is Coming. He has a chapter entitled, Signs of Christ's Speedy Coming. And he makes this claim. We believe that the coming of the Lord is imminent. And then he goes on to explain the evidence for this conviction. Jews are returning to Israel. Wealth is being accumulated in the hands of the few. Evangelism is going global. Apostasy is here and there. Buddhism is booming in Boston. Companies are drilling for oil and gas. Communism, socialism, anarchy, war, atheism. The public school system in America, which shows that knowledge is increasing, and also denominational higher education growing. And finally, he notes that in our modern times, because of new technology, a person running to and fro may now circumnavigate the earth in only 60 days. This book published in 1917. Evidence, Jesus is coming right now. I have enjoyed Matthew Avery Sutton, his uh, book, American Apocalypse. He's a religious American historian near here, Washington State University. And he writes about a century of American history where we have been fixated on the doctrine of the second coming of Jesus and making predictions all the way. Notice some of the historical artifacts he includes in his book. First, uh, here's a picture of Amy Semple McPherson, founder of the Foursquare Movement, talking about the soon coming of Jesus there at the close of World War I, 1918. Or this uh, magazine, The King's Business, its theme, Signs of the Times, 1919. Or these issues of the Sunday School Times, first 1922, Jesus is coming, the key to the Holy Scriptures. Or this edition in 1933, running the schedule on time, the throttle wide open, world events, clearly showing us the nearness of Jesus' return. Or 1939, this issue at the beginning of World War II, world events showing us that the times are short. Or this book from Moody Press in 1945, The Dropping of the Atomic Bomb, illustrating the nearness of the coming. Some of you may be familiar with this next one, the book The Late Great Planet Earth, 1970. For others, these will be more familiar. Left Behind, Armageddon, The Cosmic Battle of the Ages, World's End, On the Brink of Armageddon, The Mark, The Beast Rules the World or desecration, Antichrist takes the throne. Evident, surely, that Jesus is coming later today. Billy Graham has certainly been one of the most important Christian voices over the last century. 
1951, when the Russians first demonstrated that they could drop a bomb. In a speech in Los Angeles, he told the crowd that he once thought Jesus would come within five years, but he was revising his prediction to two years because surely the evidence pointed in that direction. His book, Approaching Hoofbeats, later, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse in 1983, the age of the Cold War and communism. He updated the book in 1992. Storm warning, with the collapse of communism, the nuclear threat has diminished, but ominous shadows of deceptive evil loom on the horizon. And then the book, with the help of his son, revised again in 2010. Storm warning, completely revised and updated. Whether global recession, terrorist threats, or devastating natural disasters, these ominous shadows must bring us back to the gospel. And on it goes. You see, I think that those messengers from heaven were clear-headed in what they had to say to those first Advent hopefuls. Why are you gazing up to the skies? This is dangerous business for people who are hoping on this future. Perhaps the dangers of such predictions are illustrated in Aesop's fables. You remember the story of the boy who cried wolf? He lived outside the town, and it was his job to watch the sheep. He was bored one day. Wolf, wolf, there's a wolf, he cried, and all the townspeople rushed in to save the sheep. He just laughed because it had not really been true. That was so much fun. He did it a week later. Wolf, wolf, and all the townspeople rushed up. Well, there was no wolf. And then a third time, he cries wolf where there is no predator. And then, of course, the story goes, one day a wolf appears. And he cries, wolf, wolf. And nobody shows up. And the sheep are killed and are scattered. And the punchline, a wise man from the village says to the young boy, nobody believes a liar even when he is telling the truth. For those of us who hope for the second coming, we must be careful that we are not in the business of crying wolf, wolf. Week after week, generation after generation, because the consequence of false cries, nobody believes a liar even one day when they might be telling the truth. These two messengers from heaven first clear some brush away. We are not to be gazing into the heavens wondering when this is going to happen, making predictions about the sequence and pointing out all the passing evidence in the world for the certainty of Christ's arrival. Rather, if we are to obey Jesus, we must be his witnesses in word and in compassionate deed on this planet until he decides to come back again. They clear some brush. But second, second, after Posing, why do you stand here looking into the sky? They plant a tree, don't they? This same Jesus will come back. 
I believe that God has put in all humanity this hope everywhere. This hope that the next 5,000 years will not be like the previous. In 2006, this Pew survey, 79% of Americans believe, hope for the second coming. 41% believe this will happen by the year 2050. 20% believe it will happen in their own lifetime. I read recently that in the last year, all Americans who said they went to the Scriptures, read the Bible, one-third did so because they wanted to know more about the future. There's a desire in all of us, a hope for a better day. This is true in popular culture as well, books and films. Think of Disney. What is, after all, the magic kingdom? But a hope in a better future, is it not? Disney's latest creation, a film that came out just days ago, here's the title, Tomorrowland, Remember the Future. A core line in the film, a conversation. A little girl named Casey looking up to the stars with her parents. The mother says, why do you love the stars so much? Casey, because I want to go there. Mom, what if you get all the way there and there's nothing? Casey, what if there's everything? This same Jesus will come back. I have an anthology of essays on my desk written by atheists and agnostics. The title of the collection, uh, the question, what are you optimistic about? And there's a variety of responses from these uh, considerable intellectual heavyweights. Among them, Marcelo Gleiser, professor of physics and astronomy at Dartmouth College. I want you to listen uh, to the tension in his words. He writes, life is tough. People suffer, and rightly or wrongly, religion offers something for people to hold on to. Yes, he says, it's crazy to believe in supernatural influences in the world and to devote your life to a God that seems to have vanished from the world for, by conservative estimate, at least 2,000 years. But scientists ought not to forget that most people need some sort of spiritual guidance a kind of guidance that science, at least as it is taught today, cannot offer. Science has shown and keeps showing that we live in a cold, hard universe, completely indifferent to us and to life, and yet people love, die, connect, fight, and must come to some sort of inner peace or acceptance. What can science offer these people. It is simply futile, he writes, and naive to simply dismiss the need people have for spirituality. 
although I'm an atheist, I do not forget what is behind the power of religious thought. Quite simply, hope. Hope. This same Jesus is coming again. This Wednesday, I took my Ministry of Jesus class to what I believe is the most sacred space in College Place. Just a couple of hundred yards this way to spend some moments at a place we call, appropriately, Mount Hope. This has been a school year with many laughs and lots of learning, but it has been a season of loss. And I thought at the end of this school year it would be appropriate for us to spend a moment quietly, reflecting upon the names of those who we have lost but who now rest in Jesus until he comes. Corey Ten Boom says, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Some 40 couples from our student ranks have gotten married this spring or will do so this summer. And they will say vows that go something like this. After naming one another, I, Rochelle, take you, Sean. I, Sean, take you, Rochelle. And then what comes next? An acknowledgement that the future is not certain. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health. But those vows will be said nonetheless. Because we have confidence in an unknown, uncertain future. If we are joining a certain person whom we love. I, Alex, take you, Jesus. Not because I know when. Not because I know what tomorrow will hold. Not because the future is certain and clear, but because Jesus is certain and clear. Congregation, this is must, must be why we unflinchingly 
commit ourselves to knowing Jesus Christ alone. For he reveals to us God with clarity. And if we will cling to him, whatever the future holds, we can do it. We can do it with him. This Jesus, this Jesus is one that C.S. Lewis discovered. And to Lewis we shall give the final words of this sermon series. In his book, The Last Battle, his characters having finally arrived in heaven. All their life in this world, and all their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before it. <laughs> 